You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Welcome to today's episode of Trust Issues. We're starting the new year with a conversation focused on securing critical infrastructure. Things like energy, communications, dams, water, healthcare, it's a long list. What's determined to be critical infrastructure varies somewhat from country to country, and we'll get into some nuances in today's conversation. The issue, of course, is that we're seeing increased threats and cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, not to mention the war in Ukraine. It's a global issue. This collective threat is a rallying point bringing together cyber professionals from around the world as well as their respective countries. Our guest today is David Higgins, who is a senior director in CyberArk's field technology office. He's a thoughtful guy who's got technical chops, and as part of his role, he's on the front lines with our customers. Last month, we asked David and a few other members of the CyberArk team to sound off on the CyberArk blog about the top trends they see influencing 2023 cybersecurity strategies. One of David's contributions to that piece has to do with countries coming together to combat cyber terrorism and strengthen defenses to protect critical infrastructure. In part, he says that push will extend to the private sector in 2023 with enterprise organizations, including their IT and security teams. Answering the call to help bring systems back online after attacks as well as helping to fend off future threats. And that's a jumping off point for today's conversation with David. He's got some great insight into how the critical infrastructure landscape has changed and how protectors, which likely includes many of you good folks listening, have had to adapt, as well as the global implications that are now at the center of this. Pardon the phrase, new normal. Here's my talk with David Higgins. Welcome to the podcast, David. For those uh, folks out there who may not know of you, um, I'm going to say that you are a senior director in the field technology office at CyberArk. To start off the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about what that means uh, and what the field technology office is? Yeah, absolutely. So what it kind of means to me, or what, well, what it means you know, for, for our customers and, and how we work. So I, I've been at CyberArk for quite some time now coming up to 13 years, I think it is. And, you know, within the field technology office, we've got a huge range of um, expertise. We, you know, I think if you accumulate all the experience the team have when it comes to identity security, we're, we're approaching the kind of, I think, 40-year kind of mark, right, if you combine it all together. Um, and really what we're doing is it's kind of a two-way type role. I think the first thing is that we're, we're, we're out there in the field, speaking with customers, speaking with security leaders, identity leaders, and really telling them about you know what we see working, what isn't working, what are the trends around identity security, but but also you know having having that dialogue with them, understanding what challenges they're seeing, what challenges they kind of foresee down the road, and then the other direction of that is to work very closely with our product team, right? Take that information, take those trends, and feed it back to our product team, and, and let them know right what these these senior security leaders are thinking out there in the field. You contributed to our 2023 cybersecurity trends blog post, which is actually uh, publishing today, December 16th. This will air um, shortly after the new year. One of the trends that you um, said is likely to gain momentum in 2023 
uh, has to do with global cyber terrorism and critical infrastructure. What are you seeing there uh, develop and, and what might the repercussions be over time? Yeah, so it's, it was kind of two things you were seeing, right? Just generally, I think, you know, we can we can all relate to what's happened earlier in the year, right, with, uh, with the invasion of Ukraine. And naturally, I think that's put a lot more focus on, um, you know, the, the cyber field, the cyber realm, and obviously, you know, organizations or, you know, nation states specifically targeting critical infrastructure, of course, of, you know, say Russia, Ukraine, in that, in that kind of regard. It's also, I think, put a lot more pressure then on Western allies, right? Because, of course, they're very much back in Ukraine in, in, in this situation. And naturally, I think it's increased the, you know, the focus that, you know, the Western allies now have, you know, from, from will be cyber attacks. And you can see that. And I think what kind of brought it to my attention is, you can start to see that seeping through because governments themselves are reacting. We're starting to see more regulation come through that says, hey, look, you're in the telco sector or, you know, your critical infrastructure. You see the new update to NIST for the EU, right, with NIST 2 being updated. There seems to be a lot more focus coming from the governments themselves to make sure that critical infrastructure is better protected, better defended against, you know, what is perhaps, you know, an increasingly or higher risk, you know, in terms of likelihood of attack from nation state. So it probably then makes sense to talk about critical infrastructure uh, for a moment here at the top of the conversation. Um, what falls under the umbrella of critical infrastructure and how does what's defined as critical infrastructure vary from region to region or country to country? So, you know, I think if you'd ask someone that kind of question five years ago, what's critical infrastructure? They'll say things like, you know, the electricity supplies, the energy supplies, right? Oil and gas, water, utilities. It would be those ones that, you know, if if they shut down, people lose power and water to their houses, right? That's, of course, monumental, right, in terms of impact. Still very much those are critical infrastructure. I'm not saying they're not anymore. They're top of the top of the triangle. But what we're also seeing is now other services, which perhaps we didn't pre- predominantly presume were critical, if I can get my words out, <laughs> but really they are, right? So it's, it's if you think telecommunications, absolutely, right? You know, the telephone networks, internet service providers, absolutely, right? Um, any kind of public service that, you know, we kind of rely on, even like waste disposal to, to an extent, right? If they stop operating and then we just have rubbish or garbage, you know, do the transatlantic, you know, translation Trash. Trash, there we go, thank you. Accumulating <laughs> out of houses, right? That's that's That starts impact yeah. health, et cetera, right? So, you know, I think all of these things can be deemed as critical na- national infrastructure. Some naturally will have higher impact and risk should they be shut down. But, you know, we're really starting to see, as I say, internet service providers, telecommunication providers, mobile phone networks, right? Absolutely essential, right, to the day-to-day uh, of, of everyday life. Incredible the variety of of things that are that slot under critical infrastructure at this point are just uh it's kind of staggering to think what it would be like to have to make do without any of them yeah absolutely we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for the wi-fi and of course this is a critical conversation so uh, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) we probably wouldn't be having this conversation at least in this kind of uh, way or or with this kind of focus if it wasn't for the war in Ukraine. Um, And it's considered to be a a new era of warfare. Um, And I think I I either read this or you said it at some point, um, you know, hybrid war, which involves both physical and digital attacks. Um, How has that war in Ukraine um, altered the cyber landscape globally? Yeah. So I, 
you know, if we, if we talk about what we kind of saw prior to the 2022 invasion, right, obviously, you know, there's the annexation a few years back. But if we look at that, in the build-up to the invasion, right, there were several things that kind of took place out of Russia towards Ukrainian governmental, you know, establishments, you know, in the form of, you know, um, form of ransomware attacks, in the form of denial of service attacks. You kind of see these now being used in conjunction, which is, you know, worrying and, you know, very concerning that, you know, these these cyber attacks are kind of a precursor or were a precursor in this case for the invasion of Ukraine. And, and obviously a reflection that that nation state saw the value of trying to, you know, shut down and be disruptive from a cyber perspective before a physical military invasion kind of began. Um, and then, you know, I think that's really an eye opener. And I think that, you know, it, it makes cyber very much part of national security for sure, which, which it has been for a while, but it just re-emphasizes, you know, that point. And I think what it's also now done is it, it, that hasn't stopped, right? The, the kind of attacks from a cyber perspective that predated the invasion. It's not that that's stopped, right? That's kind of continued and it's now continued outside of Ukraine as well. And I think a lot of, as I mentioned before, a lot of Western organizations have probably seen their risk profile increase as a consequence of the invasion. Telecommunications and, and Wi-Fi and interconnectivity, I think it seems like more than ever because of these things, you know, globally, we are interconnected. I was um, looking at the latest headlines and, and there was something on bbc.com that said today there have been new new strikes across Ukraine. But one of the things I saw was really interesting is Ukraine has accused Russia of weaponizing winter um, by striking essential facilities as temperatures fall below freezing. I mean, we've heard about these things, but the actual phrasing, the weaponizing of winter, how is that potentially connected to attacks on critical infrastructure? Yeah, obviously, sadly, in, in, in Ukraine, that attack on attack on winter or weaponizing winter, which is a really interesting way of putting it, um, they're doing it from a military standpoint, right? And obviously, it's missiles raining down, sadly, on, on that population. But if you think about it, you know, another way you could do that naturally, you know, there's this huge energy, uh, there's an energy crisis right now in terms of cost of living and all that fun stuff, you know, a lot of that infrastructure, the world's become more connected, right? You know, once upon a time, I think, you know, these utility providers and manufacturers and all, all sorts, right, very much talks about that air-gapped environment, right? You know, we, we've got our IT corporate network and we've got our OT environment. It's completely air-gapped. And it's the OT operational technology uh, to, you know, to debunk the acronyms. We love acronyms, right, in IT security. Uh, the OT environment is, is there to actually run, you know, the actual critical infrastructure side, right, the flow of water, right, the flow of electricity, whatever it may be. Um, but that what's becoming more and more connected. So yes, you could you could strike it physically in a military sense that we've seen. Or of course, and we saw this before, we actually saw this before in the Ukraine, right? In 2016, I think it was, where there was a target attack against energy suppliers that shut down the supply of energy to the Ukraine. Well, I think it was two-thirds of the population lost power as the result of a cyber attack, right? And that's the other way that you could weaponize winter in the way that you know they phrased it there, is you 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 base it on an external cyber attack. You you gain entry into the environment, perform lateral movement, and you get to that critical system and you you, you shut it down. And that's exactly, as I say, what we saw very worryingly in 2016, uh, also in Ukraine. Right? Yeah, absolutely, sandworm. Um, the the global uncertainty around energy as a result of the war in Ukraine. How does that factor into? global critical infrastructure, cyber challenges and, and concerns, you know, across the board, not just there regionally. Yeah. 
So I'd say naturally, I think, and I think the advice, you know, obviously the, the Western allies, of course, are supporting Ukraine commercially and with weapons and all that fun stuff. We see it in the news, right? And those governments are, of course, now providing advice back to the organizations within their countries to say, we're expecting an increase in the number of attempts from nation states, right? So better prepare yourselves. That's the advice. They may not necessarily give specific examples that has happened, but their advice is you'd better be, get better prepared, right? And so we'll see that, what that's meaning, I think, for organizations, both in critical infrastructure, but private sector uh, too, right? But, um, you know, critical infrastructure, by the way, we also have got financial services. There's another huge one, right? Banking systems go down. That's that's pretty damaging. So, you know, banking sector, et cetera, they've naturally had to now start thinking about, well, we, we've got a risk registry. We've got a series of vulnerabilities that we know we need to address at some point, but they're categorized based on risk, right? And we'll push certain... You know, we'll handle certain vulnerabilities in a certain period of time. But also, you know, there's, there's only so much change that can happen in the environment. So we need to make sure some of that change is innovation. And we need to make sure some of that change is updating applications and services that they offer to their customers. But I think now what we're seeing is because of this advice from the government to say, you need to be better prepared, it's almost putting pressure to fix a lot more of the vulnerabilities than they perhaps would have done in the past. And so we may start to see where organizations are so so embedded or so involved in in fixing vulnerabilities that it stagnates a little bit innovation, stagnates a little bit of kind of, you know, uh, improving services, et cetera, to to their customer base. You know, it may be one of the unforeseen circumstances of this increased risk from nation state attacks. Are you starting to see that now, the decrease in innovation based on the, you know, needing to essentially play whack-a-mole with, with, you know, vulnerabilities? I, I couldn't specifically say seeing the lack of innovation, but I've certainly heard that concern that I've just shared right directly from customers, right? You know, they, as I say, right, they, they, they got a certain amount of changes they'll push through in a particular change window. And, you know, th- th- there's a mixture of things that happen. Security updates will be some of those. Um, but certainly in the, the initial aftermath of the, the start of the Ukraine war, right, I think a lot of that, that, that change was, was consumed by patching vulnerabilities that perhaps were only low to medium on their risk register, right? Um, and that's naturally, I think, had a, an initial stifling. I can't say I've pers- personally witnessed it, but I've certainly heard the concerns from, from customers in the field. Customers is definitely something I wanted to get into a little bit with you because you're, you're talking to them all the time. You're, you're speaking to customers all around the world. Um, who are you talking to and what are their concerns about all of this critical infrastructure and cyber attacks on critical infrastructure? And, you know, how is whether it be the war in Ukraine impacting them or other cyber aggressors, and I want to talk about them in in uh, in a bit. Um, you know, what are they? What are their concerns, and and what can they do? And I guess I've already asked you twenty questions, so I'll let you roll. <laughs> know we can get into it. I'll try and handle a couple of them. Um, so I think, uh, and it links a little bit to what I was saying before about we started to see more regulations seep through government, uh, whether I base it here in, you know, in the UK, where, of course, you know, I'm based, um, where we saw new legislation come out of the UK government focused purely on the telco sector, right? And that was all about improving the security resilience of the telecommunications network, but for obvious reasons that we just kind of you know, uh, talked about. And we're starting to see that in other places as well. The Australian government have, have you know, made a stance to say they want to improve their cybersecurity posture. We've seen EU NIST be updated to the second, you know, version of it. 
which kind of refocused and redefined what they determine as critical national infrastructure to make sure it's kind of consistent. And you, you wrote a couple of big blog posts uh, on the CyberArk blog around NIST 2 recently. Uh, folks should check those out. They, they're really, really insightful and helpful. You you directly plugged me. I was kind of subtly plugging it, but it's good. I appreciate that. Thanks, Dave. Um, and, and so I think, you know, generally, I think critical infrastructure organizations, you know, for, for, they've had their own risk registers, of course, and they've been aware, I think, you know, of the, you know, the, the increased risk of being ever connected. Big pressure point now, big concern, of course, is now it's being backed up with regulation and there's consequences of not being compliant. That naturally creates a lot more attention, a lot more pressure right now. Now, you know, if I take the telco sector in the UK as an example, all the telco providers are now reacting to the TSR, TSA, to make sure that they're ready and they've got the right things in place for what the UK government's asking them, right? So there's always that joy, right, with, you know, cybersecurity professionals would, would, would love to do, you know, everything, address all the risks, but it's always a balancing act with, you know, other priorities and budgets. But when there's some regulation behind that, really does drive the pressure point. Um, so that's certainly been something that's reoccurring is organizations now starting to work out how do we how do we make sure that we can adhere to this? And by adhering to this, we should be in theory more cyber resilient, um, you know, from nation states or cyber criminals. Because and I'm going off on a tangent, I do this a lot, apologies. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget cyber criminals in this whole conversation, because there's so many examples out there where it will be cyber criminals backed by nation state X, Y, and Z. They can kind of hide behind these cyber criminal organizations because well, it's not us, it's these cyber criminals who are performing the attacks. But you, there's quite a few examples out there, right, where cyber criminals appear to be nation state funded or nation state backed, right? And it kind of allows the nation state to disassociate itself directly from, from the attack. Do you have a solution for, uh, for that? <laughs> um, well, it's, I think, you know, certainly from, you know, from my perspective, what I've seen, and I speak about this a lot with customers, is everyone's going to have their own threat intelligence. Everyone's going to identify where an attack's most likely going to come from to them, right? If you're in if you're in government, you're probably thinking nation state's your biggest concern. If you're in financial services, nation state for sure, but cyber criminals as well. Um, but really, you know, what I talk about with customers is whether it's nation states, cyber criminals, hacktivists, whatever, right? They're, they're going to have different resourcing and different patient levels, et cetera, right? Some are, some are operating as a business and need to be profitable, et cetera, right? But forgetting all that, the once, once they get in, and that's kind of the assumption, once they get in with the world being ever more connected, they're going to get in. What happens next is usually always the same, right? I think, you know, Microsoft themselves released a recent report about, you know, the state of play from cyber attacks did a lot of focus and, and mentioned there's been a huge increase on attacks on the critical infrastructure, almost doubled. Um, but called out at the end, the best defense still is good cyber hygiene, right? Get good control of who's got, who's got entitlements, who's got privileges, who's got admin access, because it doesn't matter if it's nation state coming through the door, or if it's cyber criminals or hacktivists, or really where they want to go, whether it's espionage, disruption of service, stealing data, that bit that happens in the middle, it's pretty much the same that we see play out. It just manifests differently, different tools behind the scenes, but it's compromise identities, perform credential theft, do lateral movement, elevate privileges, execute an objective. And that execute an objective might be shutting down the power as we saw in Ukraine in 2016, or it might be exfiltrating data as we saw many years ago with the OPM in the US and lots of personal data records being stolen, right? Different, uh, different objective, different intrusion, bit in the middle. By and large, it's pretty much the same. I'm, I'm simplifying massively, I'm sure, but yeah. 
Yeah. If you need to start somewhere, it's back to basics. And, 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 you know, from a, you'd mentioned the consequences of not being compliant when you're talking about customers um, and, and, you know, obviously new regulations that are, that are, um, that are coming into play or being established. And, you know, one of the things that sort of crossed my mind was if we're having this conversation in a year and talking about trends to look out for in 2024, um, could compliance fatigue wind up being one of those? I'd say it's a bit of a double-edged sword, if that's the right expression, in, in that it gives both positive and negatives, right? You know, if you look at sectors like financial services, which which have been heavily regulated for many years, uh, you know, I would say they probably do feel a little bit of regulation fatigue or perhaps auditor fatigue, right? The, the, you know, some of the customers I speak to kind of feel like they're constantly chasing their tail in terms of just reacting to audit point X and audit point Y and never having the ability to be proactive. And, and that sometimes can be the downside of too much regulation is it perhaps stifles organizations being proactive in their cybersecurity strategies. Um, but the flip side of that, as I say, I'm not sure the double-edged sword was the right term, but we'll use flip side. That's probably better, right? The flip side of that is um, regulation does drive people to invest in their cybersecurity policies, right? It does it does drive people to put the right controls in place. Now, sometimes that has to be caveated, right? Because we don't, you know, I, I've seen where organizations have deployed security technology to appease regulation X or, you know, you know some kind of audit point, and it becomes a tactical deployment. They can demonstrate that they've done what they needed to do in the particular area, but if they're not able to stand back and think like an attacker and think all the other intrusion routes, yes, that area may be kind of got the right security controls in place, but they've left the rest of the environment kind of open. Um, so attackers don't think about, oh, I'm not going to touch that because it's, you know, it's in a regulated environment. They're going to have security controls. There'll be a plethora of other ways to kind of get in. So kind of what I'm saying is sometimes I think we see Regulation drives the right behavior for sure. It, it gives the security professionals the budgets they need to, to go out and to do things, but sometimes they also end up being tactically deployed as a perhaps more, again, linking back to my proactive statement, being more proactive in doing something, you know, in terms of an overall cybersecurity approach. Are you generally feeling like it's being welcomed with open arms? And, and then I guess the second part of the question would be, how do our cyber realities, your and my cyber realities differ? Yeah, is it being welcomed? Um, I, 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 look, I guess so to an extent, um, because what, what it's always doing, I think, all, all this, you know, increased regulation, increased, you know, appearance in media around cyber attacks. What it's doing is it's just continually driving up awareness, and I think awareness is huge, right? We need to make sure people are aware about the risks the organisations they work for face, right? Yeah, you know, I think. You know, often or historically, security has kind of been seen as the bad guy in companies that just put stuff out there to make people's life more difficult. And, and, and if anything, that's just the consequence of actually security professionals who are incredibly intelligent and resourceful are probably not the best at marketing. And that's been a bit of a downside. They're not very good at marketing why they're doing things. But, you know, increased regulation, increased, uh, as I say, um, appearance in the media around cyber attacks is, I think, having a positive in terms of just increasing everyone's awareness about why it's so important to be doing the right things from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, to your question about UK versus US in terms of our cyber worlds differing, I, I would say even though there's a huge, you know, Atlantic Ocean in between us, um, probably not too much, right? I think, you know, uh, the close allies, 
you know, so similar, similar allies between them, similar, therefore, external threats. You know, I think the UK, if you go on to the NCSC, which stands for the National Cybersecurity Centre, it's, uh, it's the UK's cybersecurity centre, right, a governmental uh, kind of advisory body. And they list the top four nation state threats to the UK, right? And I'm sure if I list them, they're probably the same top four for the US, right? So it's Russia, China. The UK Prime Minister very recently came out and said, look, China represents one of the biggest threats um, to the UK for, for various reasons. He called out cybersecurity and the need to, to better secure the UK from a cyber perspective because of China. So Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Now, if we would go to the US and check US government's websites, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'd see the top same four right listed. Yeah, that sounds sounds about right. <laughs> um, and and wasn't the uh, the UK a victim of uh, cyber attack on its critical infrastructure some somewhat recently? Yeah, go back. I I couldn't give you the date. I'd have to just double check it so we could we could just insert that as a little you know update to the blog. But yeah, there was there was an attack on um, uh, a water supply. Um, now it was it was associated to um, uh, cyber criminals in the end, so it wasn't necessarily saying this was nation state, but they were Russian based as from 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 all accounts, um, and they got into a uh, a water company here in the UK. Um, I think it, it re- ultimately resulted more in data loss, but the claim is they had access to systems that were controlling the amount of chemicals etc. they put in the water. We saw something similar again that UK US comparison with Florida. I think that was earlier this year, perhaps, or maybe end of last year, uh, where attackers got access to systems that ultimately could control the chemical supplies and levels, you know, that go into the water supply that ultimately get pushed out to, to the population. And and naturally, as I'm saying that, right, that that's that's something you worry about, right? No one really thinks twice about turning the, the tap in the faucet, right, and getting a glass of water. Um, you don't really worry about what's in that water, but actually what's in that water is controlled by technology that it sounds like unfortunately could be could be compromised right really terrifying and and you know the the impetus if you if you would take a, a guess at, uh, behind these attacks is it to disrupt is it to just do it for the the sport of it what what's you know what's the motivation yeah, I'd, I'd say a lot's going to come back to who the who the victim is or the region is, right, and who the nation state is. But you, you kind of see it being, you know, one of potentially three or four things, right? Where it's data related, it could be just purely espionage, right? It could be just to to steal information, get a better understanding of how that infrastructure works, individuals that work for them, all kind of things. So it could purely just be an espionage. Um, you know, it could also be. Um, uh, Exfiltration of IP, right? You know, capitalism, one of the benefits of it, it's got downsides. We won't go into that. And that's a different conversation, right? But the pros, certainly one of the benefits is it drives innovation, right? We see huge innovation, right, within the US and the UK, et cetera. Uh, and the value of a nation state of stealing that innovation to fuel its own organizations, its own companies, uh, make, makes a lot of sense. So you, you may see it for that reason. The, the worrying one, of course, is, you know, purely for um, disruption, right? For um, to to cause disruption for for whatever reasons. Now in Ukraine, sadly, we saw that as actually being part of that hybrid warfare that we talked about. But we may also be, see it used as a kind of diversionary type approach, right? I see as we've talked about already, the Western allies are backing Ukraine in the, in the ways that they're doing. Um, but if they were the victim of a huge damaging cyber attack that had massive national repercussions, naturally their focus has got to be shifted away from external, you know, affairs. 
and focus more internally to solve their own internal problems. So, so, you know, that's probably a worry, right, is that they start to be used to really consume the resources of, you know, the Western allies to, to solve their own problems and means they stop, you know, focusing a little bit on what's happening outside their borders. It's, it's such an enormous topic. It really is. A country where there have been some interesting developments recently is uh, Australia. Um, it was recently announced that they're going to develop a new cybersecurity strategy and it'll be designed to fortify the country's critical infrastructure. What's going on in Australia to fuel this particular initiative, other than the obvious, everything we've already been talking about? <laughs> yeah, they've been witnessing, or I should unfortunately been the victims of, quite a few series of high-profile breaches, right, that have hit both telecommunications and private medical care. Um, and so I think it's really raised the prominence within Australia about better protecting themselves because these, these attacks haven't been small-scale. Right. They've been huge millions in terms of you know records, et cetera, divulged, uh, impacting large ray, you know, large waves of the population. So it's really raised the again to what we're talking about, it's raised the awareness and, and naturally now the government's reacting and saying, well, actually, we probably need to get better. And you know, the, the numbers they're talking about investing into their own internal, you know, cybersecurity, but also improving that of the of the country is is, is huge numbers, right? Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, that investment is indicative of something that their Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, um, she said in December this month that the goal is to make Australia the world's most cybersecure country by 2030. Um, what's it going to take to achieve this goal other than investment, of course? And is 2030 ambitious enough as a goal? And should every country, you know, be be trying to be the most cybersecure country? And well, is, it, is, that, is that something they can even achieve? I, I think, you know, um, I've got a friend who works in, uh, in the building industry and he says, everything's possible with the right level of money, right? So I think everything's possible with the right funding, right? And the right resource behind it. Uh, and that's probably going to be the challenge, right? Is, is turning that investment into something that's going to have that impact in what, just over, just under eight years time, right? Um, so is it achievable, you know, possibly with the right kind of sponsorship? But I think it, it takes more than money, right? Because it's it's got to take, unfortunately, we, we've touched on the subject already. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be backed up by some pressure points, right? There needs to be some regulation and some driving force from the government down onto private public sectors. That's why you need to be doing these things. Because if you're not doing these, you know, the cyber hygiene essentials that we kind of talked about, if you're not doing these things, you're more exposed, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to make you non-compliant. You know, sadly, it drives prioritization, as we kind of talked about. So I, I suspect that behind the funding, there will also be some legislation drawn out that says this is the minimum expectation and, you know, certainly an emphasis on critical national infrastructure. Like we've seen the EU do, the UK has kind of, you know, inherited NIST as well. It kind of, we were still in the EU, I think, when NIST first came out. Um, so we've kind of, kind of maintained it. Um, and I, th I guess Australia will need to do the same thing because you you can say these things, but you've got to got to push people in the right direction because you know um, you know for organisations who are making money, that's what they want to do. They want to stay in business. They want to make money. Right? Investing money in cybersecurity doesn't necessarily directly equate to more dollars, more pounds, etc. Earned. Right. Um, so there's, there's probably got to be a little bit of pressure backed up behind that to make it happen. Right. And and. Interesting to me, and maybe there's something to this or, or not, because we know cyber doesn't really have borders. 
or, or care about borders or realize there are borders, but Australia is its own isolated continent. Um, does that pose more or greater cyber, you know, risk or do they, you know, are there more cyber threats than countries with actual bordering neighbors? But, you know, UK, arguably, we're the same, right? We're an island oh, yeah. much, much Good smaller, point. you know, yeah. much, much smaller. Um, same, same, I guess, as you say, borders don't mean much in a cyber world. Um, so it's probably what becomes more a little bit, well, what's the downside of being a small little island or a big island like Australia, right? And it could be that you rely on, you know, we rely on energy imports, you know, for example, and certain imports, uh, imports like food, etc. cetera. Um, so perhaps being in an island means you're more reliant on certain things to be shipped in. And if you're reliant on, you know, the movement of goods or the movement of energy, whatever it is, then you're probably reliant on technology to back that up and make sure that it happens. So again, disruption, you know, would would naturally have a consequence of that, right? You know, I think if you go back to the the large Danish shipping company that was, you know, had an attack, um, you know, they had to ground a lot of ships for a long period of time. Now, I'm not saying that impacted food, etc., kind of distribution. But give that as an example that, um, you know, perhaps island nations, Australia, UK included, um, you know, perhaps a little bit more reliant on imports than those with with physical borders where things could be driven over or trained over, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I guess then going back to that Australian goal of being the most cybersecure country by 2030, uh, is there currently a most secure uh, a cyber secure country and you know that you know of and, yeah. and if so why why would that be yeah or not, how not that i know about it maybe no one wants to brag about that because you kind of put yeah, yourself right, right. on a you kind of mm-hmm. put your head above the parapet by saying that right we're super yeah, secure yeah. and then you become a right target um the reason one i could say is the most secure but i guess you know from a nation state perspective there's one that you could say is perhaps the I guess the most well-funded and the largest right i think it was actually uh, the fbi director earlier this year stated he believes that the the amount of cyber resources that China has from a nation-state attack perspective is more than all the other nation-state actors kind of put together, right? It's, mm. it's such a sizable one. I'm not saying they're the more secure, but from a – so not so much – I'm not answering your defensive question, for more from an off- offensive side of the question. Who's got the better offense? Um, and it's, it would – you know, from what the FBI director said, it would imply that China's probably the, the nation-state with the biggest threat, poses the biggest threat. Thank you, David. So looking at critical infrastructure as it pertains to cyber attacks and this, you know, trend, again, if we're looking at it as a trend, um, which we are for the construct of this conversation, if there's one final thing that we haven't touched upon in this conversation that that we should be on the lookout for as it pertains to critical infrastructure and cyber attacks, what what would that be? I'd give you two. I know you said what's the one thing I'm going to oh, give you two. Oh, two things. is even better. Sorry, thank you. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to leverage you know what we kind of talked about a little bit with the EUNIS too, and some of the updates did, which are very logical, and I think we haven't really touched on too much on the implications they have for for critical national infrastructure. Because when we're talking about energy supplies, we're really thinking about that energy supply themselves and how they should be better protected or water supplies. But again, with the world becoming more connected, you know, people working remotely more and more, um, supply chain. It's, it's definitely something that you know critical infrastructure perhaps um, is is reliant upon, and that's another kind of you know um, vector for an attack. So rather than attack, you know, if regulation does get pushed down and these organisations do become more secure, it's kind of like we've seen a little bit with the banking sector. The banks have always had you know 
compared to other industries, fairly sizable cybersecurity pots because of what they do, um, they become a pretty tough nut to crack. So logically, attackers then start focusing on their subsidiaries and their supply chain as that easy route in. And critical asset infrastructure definitely needs to be thinking about that as well. Uh, and the only other area that we didn't touch on is more acronyms coming, right? But IoT, uh, you know, so Internet of Things. And again, it's, it kind of ties into that ever-connected, better-connected world that, you know, these IoT-type systems being used in our homes, smart meters, that kind of thing, um, what kind of risk perhaps they play, because it all ties in back into the kind of critical national infrastructure conversation, right? We can now remotely control our heating, right, from 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 the internet connection, right? So our, our homes themselves are becoming more connected. And what implications, you know, could that have if, because, you know, those smart meters talk back to a mothership, right? So if the mothership is compromised, what, what kind of implications could that have, you know, for, for homeowners? Probably another conversation for another time, perhaps, but probably two topic areas uh, we missed. Yeah, you're, you're setting up you're setting up a number of conversations, <laughs> which uh, is really, uh, I look forward to those. I mean, this is, uh, it's staggering, I think, the implications of all this and the, and the interconnectivity of, of everything, really, yeah, I mean, if you think about it. So, um, really interesting, really uh, a lot to think about going into the new year. And um, thank you for, for joining us uh, at the, the end of 2022. We look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 